Hi, everyone, and welcome to the episode 325 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Customized Care with Katie Bork. My name is Jen Hyla. And I'm Richard Johannesson. And today you're going to be hearing a really interesting story of Katie's experience getting Lyme disease and studying nursing, actually becoming a registered nurse, and her journey of just learning to customize her own care. Without further ado, we're excited to introduce Katie Bork. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Tick Boot Camp. So my name is Jen Hyla. I am a former field biologist turned late-stage Lyme disease survivor. I wrote the Lyme Ease Survival Guidebook in hopes of bringing ease to other people's journeys. I am very passionate about just sharing my experiences and excited to hear from Katie. Katie is in Colorado. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, just like a little bit of the beginning of your journey. Uh, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm super excited. I am Katie Bork and I live in Loveland, Colorado. It's a great little town. I was born and raised actually in Fort Collins, which is 50 minutes from here. So I've stayed in Colorado my whole life and I would not have changed it for anything. Um, I Living in Colorado, it's been you know, we have woods, we have mountains and everything. So I was always aware of, you know, tick bites and all of that stuff from living in a very wooded area. Um, The funny story about me is I never found a tick on my body. Like I never saw it and was like, oh, I have a tick bite. Uh, So my healing journey has been a little bit different. And my discovery of Lyme has been different just for the fact that I never saw a tick bite on me. But living in Colorado, you always have to be aware of your surroundings. So yeah. So did you do, sorry to interrupt. Did you do learn to do tick checks and stuff as a child? I did. So my mom, she was super knowledgeable about all this stuff. And she lived in LaPorte, Colorado, which is a very wooded area. And from a young age, she always like, anytime we go into the mountains, I'll check your scalp and you check your whole body. And we just make sure that we don't find anything. Wow. Okay. Um, and so what did you do? Um, you know, what were, what were you doing prior to getting sick? Were you in school? Were you, um, traveling? What, what were you up to? Yeah, I had a pretty normal life before my diagnosis of Lyme and before I got sick. Um, I was very active in school. I was in drama club. I ran track. I played volleyball. I had a great friend group. I was very social. And then when I got sick, it just all started to decline. I didn't really want to go to my after school activities. I was having trouble concentrating in school. You know, math was my favorite subject, but all of a sudden things just weren't making sense in my head. Um, So I had a really great, you know, childhood experience before I got sick. How old were you when you started noticing those symptoms? So I was pretty young. I was 10 years old when I first had any inclination of being ill. Um, I actually was diagnosed with hypopituitarism and how that diagnosis came about was I was failure to thrive. And then from that, I was overweight. So I gained about- Failure to thrive just for people that don't know is just dangerously underweight. It is. Yes. Like dangerously underweight, not healthy, not getting the nutrients that you need to grow. Um, and so I went from that to being overweight and Were I gained- you diagnosed that as a very young child or was that like kind of around 10 years old? 
Yeah, I was around 10 years old. So I was diagnosed failure to thrive at around like probably eight or nine, continued that through 10 years old. And then when I gained that weight is when I went to children's hospital and got that diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. So you were born regular weight and everything was quote air quotes normal until you're about eight years old, drastically lost weight. And then at 10, you're noticing some cognitive stuff. It sounds like. Yeah, it was really hard, you know, in the middle of the school year to just all of a sudden have your grades decline. You don't know why you can't focus on anything that the teacher is saying. And, you know, when you're doing the math classes, when you're younger, they're easy and, you know, you're, you're doing your best you can. And I was really good at math. And then all of a sudden it was just, I don't even know what four plus six is. And that was something that I had previous knowledge of. And it was very concerning to not have that previous knowledge that I had. And what was your parents' reaction to this? They were very concerned. I mean, they were going up and down Northern Colorado trying to find a doctor that could help. I ended up going to Children's Hospital down in Denver, Colorado, and I spent around two years in and out of that place. And they were trying to figure out what was wrong. They did multiple studies on me and my hormones and my blood and everything. But the funny thing is, is they never tested me for Lyme disease. Um, did anybody even mention Lyme disease? No, no one mentioned Lyme disease at all throughout this whole journey, which is crazy. You know, there needs to be a little bit more education in that sense, because my parents didn't even think to ask. I didn't think to ask my doctors, nothing. Um, so when we did all of that testing, we thought that I had hypopituitarism, which is a pituitary tumor growing on your pituitary gland. Um, up in your skull area, which causes hormones. Did they do an MRI to say that? Or they just were like, oh, we don't know what else it could be. So they did do an MRI and um, I had to be pulled out of the MRI machine a little bit early because the dye that they used caused a severe reaction where I felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, so they said, we, we couldn't see anything because the dye didn't get all the way through. So if it's, you know, under a certain millimeters, we can't see it. Um, but from all the symptoms, we're assuming that she has a small pituitary tumor. We just couldn't get all the way through the MRI because we had to pull her out, which I don't know if that reaction to the dye was because of Lyme disease as well. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was a crazy time in my life to, to be diagnosed with that, but also we weren't super certain because we couldn't see it, you know, on the MRI, there was no physical evidence that I had all of these symptoms. And so I was put on thyroid medication for seven years before they took me off of it. Yeah. And what was the reaction to those thyroid medications? Did you feel any better or? The thyroid medications helped my weight gain, you know, it kind of suppressed it a little bit, um, but it didn't help me like cognitively. I still had issues. I, I still was having a hard time in school and my grades were going down. I was failing classes and I was a very academic student. I was very smart. I, you know, studied hard. And even after studying, I would go back to my mom and she would quiz me and I couldn't remember half of the stuff I had just learned. Wow. Was, how was your gut health? Were you having like tummy troubles? Yes. My stomach, I have had a hate love relationship with my stomach. Um, even to this day, I was throwing up every meal that I ate, you know, it was coming out both ends. It was very traumatic because I didn't know what I was eating and what I was eating was affecting me. 
Um, and so I got told by a doctor that, oh, we could do, you know, a colonoscopy to figure out if you have celiac disease, but you would have to be put on gluten for three months, you know. And at that time, my parents had decided just to take me off of gluten to see if that had helped. And so I did, I went off of gluten for two months prior to them suggesting that I go back on gluten to get diagnosed with celiac disease. And at that time, I, I did not think it was worth it to me. The pain that I had felt in my stomach, it felt like I had a boulder like in my gut and it was just so heavy and painful. Um, so I've been gluten-free ever since I was, I believe, 14 years old. And I have not had a, an ounce of gluten since then. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the test is worse than, <laughs> than the illness. You know, it's like, uh, why am I taking this test? Just so you'll believe me? No, thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know the pain that I feel. I'm good with not going on it just to yeah, get you that. Know it's an issue. Let's not, we don't need a positive mark on a test to tell me it's a problem. Um, wow. So were you taken out of school then when, when you were, um, really when you first started this illness? Yeah. So around that time, my older sister, my mom and I all moved to California for a little while. Um, and instead of enrolling in a school out there, I was homeschooled, um, by my mom. And that was a really nice break from things, you know, I could just stay in my pajamas and do the homeschool and it was less pressure. I felt a lot of pressure when I was in school to perform and to be social. And it was really hard when my stomach problems and my cognitive problems really affected my day-to-day -day life. There would be some days that I couldn't even get out of bed because I was in so much pain and like screaming and crying. It was just, it was hard to want to be in school at that time as well. Yeah. How were your classmates reacting? Did you have kind of just an instinctive to like try to bottle that all up and just act normal at school or were you open with your friends or? I was not open with my friends at the time. Um, in the previous school that I was at before being homeschooled, when I gained all of that weight, I actually lost quite a bit of friends um, due to the fact of they were just not supportive of me. And I had a lot of bullies when I was back in uh, elementary and middle school. And that stuff has kind of carried on through my adult life. I feel like when you are so young, you, your brain is so impressionable. And when people call you fat and overweight, it can carry on throughout the whole rest of your life. Um, so I did lose a lot of friends. And so I did keep a lot of that to myself. I didn't really feel like opening up to them, especially those who mean to demean me and, you know, make me feel bad. Why would I confide in them? Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine it's hard enough to deal with weight fluctuations as a young girl. Um, but to have this mysterious illness on top of that, just so overwhelming for such a young, um, young person. So, yeah. wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so when, um, you were, can you kind of just tell us a little bit of how you got the Lyme diagnosis? Yes. So it's actually a crazy story. I had been having all of these symptoms for years and years and years. And every time I went to a doctor, they would refer me to another specialist, you know, go to an endocrinologist, go to a immunologist, go to a gastrointestinologist, you know, all of these places I went 
and they just kept giving me the same diagnosis. Oh, well, you have IBS, you know, you might have celiac disease, you have depression, you have anxiety, we're diagnosing you with anorexia, but it was never like a, let's get down to the bottom of this, you know, it was just like, this is your diagnosis, be on your way now, you know, we can put you on antidepressants, but I never wanted to do any of that just because, you know, I had some family members and it's just, it hasn't gone well. So I knew what I wanted for my body. Uh, so it was actually in 2021, the beginning of the year. So around like February and March, one of my friends had actually just been diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I was like, holy cannoli, all of your symptoms match my symptoms. I wonder what are the odds that I have it as well? And so she actually was the one who first, you know, kind of educated me on everything. And as she was telling her story, it just like clicked in my brain. This is exactly what I'm going through. And from that moment on, I kept going to my doctor and I said, I need to be tested for Lyme disease. I think I have it. And their, their question was, well, have you ever found a tick on your body? And I said, well, not that I know of, you know, I haven't never pulled one off of me. I've never seen it on me. And so for that, that fact and that reason, they never wanted to test me just because I hadn't found one. Um, so can you, let's, let's build that out and this part of your life together a little bit. So at this point, you're, you're about 22 years old when you finally get your diagnosis. Yes. And uh, you had actually now gone through college and you were, you were actually studying nursing. Uh, so you were, you were studying in the very, you know, uh, arena where you're now seeking assistance. So talk to us about what inspired you to pursue nursing as a career. Yeah. So when I was younger, my mom got sick with cancer. And um, at that point, you know, I was being homeschooled by her. And so I was there for her everyday treatment. I was there helping her and she had a, a pretty massive surgery. And being as young as I was, I, I was really grateful that I had that one-on-one -on -one time with my mom. And I was kind of like her little in-home health nurse, you know, running her food, running her water, you know, helping her with what she needed. And from that point on, I realized I love to help people. I love to help them feel better. I, you know, I have such a compassion for when people are sick and I instinctively just want to help them get back to normal. Um, so that's why I wanted to go into nursing as I have such a compassion for sick people, which is also kind of funny, you know, as I'm trying to nurse myself back to health as well. Well, maybe it's funny, maybe it's not. We'll talk about the irony about that, uh, of that, of that development in a minute, but let me ask you this. So you're going through this journey where you're seeing doctor after doctor, and you're now yourself, not just inspired to become a nurse, but you're now studying to become a nurse. How do you think the medical uh, community did uh, when they were, um, offering you the different, um, you know, diagnostic and treatment tools that you were seeking? It was quite frustrating to me, honestly, to be in an industry that I know so much about now and going from doctor to doctor saying, hey, I think I have this and them not listening to me. It was just, well, if a patient comes in, even if they don't have the medical background that I did, wouldn't you want to just like listen to them because they know their body best, right? Uh, as a doctor, you can only see physically, you know, and do run all the diagnostic tests, but you don't live in their body. You don't know what they're experiencing. So it's quite frustrating to be in the career that I was in and experiencing the, you know, gaslighting that I was from doctors. All right. So now let's talk about that a little bit, right? So now 
you have this desire to be a healer. You want to serve other people, especially people suffering uh, from medical illnesses. Uh, you're now being gaslit by the very profession that you are, you know, you are driven to uh, pursue. Now, I want to ask you two different pieces of your education. First, when you were studying to become a nurse, were you being taught to encourage medical professionals, you as a medical professional or other medical professionals, to listen to the onboard diagnostic system, meaning the patient's signals? Was that part of your education, your training? Were you, were you taught to do that or was that not a part of the frameworks that you were taught? It was part of the curriculum, but I wish it would have been more predominant, right? It's like, listen to all of their symptoms, formulate your own diagnostic, run all the things that we have to run in order to hand that off to the person that's going to give the diagnosis, right? It's not, hey, listen to what they think they have and alleviate their stress by testing for that thing. It was definitely, you know, less predominant than I, I definitely feel like it should well, be. Well, even, even with the way you've described it, I still think it's not adequate, right? Because part of what you were taught was, all right, let's get the information from the patient about what's wrong with them. They're now saying, all right, you now formulate in your mind uh, which of the frameworks we've taught you captures the essence of what they've taught you, and then you treat them, right? Well, what about bringing it back to the patient again and saying, hey, this is what I think it is. And this is what I think you should be doing. And please let me know how this is working for you. Or do you want to give me any input? See, the problem is that you're, you medical professionals, again, it's not a criticism of you in particular, but of the, of the industry generally, is that you're not trained to develop a partnership, right? It's take the information, develop a diagnosis, and go forward with this sort of diagnosis that the professionals are are uh, comfortable with and the treatment that the professionals are comfortable with, not looping back and finding out whether or not the, what I call the onboard diagnostic systems response to the treatment. Give me a reaction to that. No, I think that's 100% accurate. You know, I think that it should be a partnership of those two people coming together and working together to figure out what is happening with the patient and not just I, I listen to you, I hear you, but because of this, this, and this, and this, and my medical background, I'm putting you in this box, right? And it's not cut and dry where it should be like, I'm going to speak with the patient, I'm going to work with the patient, make sure that this is working with them and for them, because each person is different. One diagnosis does not fit a thousand people, right? Right. And, and more importantly, there are going to be limits to the testing that you have available to you. We're going to talk about that in the Lyme arena in, in another second. But, um, you know, if your doctors who were trained the same way you were, um, were, were failing you, you had to know while you were going through your educational process um, and your, of course, your, your, your diagnostic uh, journey, that there was something wrong, right? That, that the, the education that was being provided to medical professionals is 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 failing not just the people in the Lyme community but the community generally because they believe that their frameworks are the only frameworks and they believe that diagnostic testing is actually more valuable than the input from the patient right exactly all right so let me ask you one more thing about your education before we beat that up too badly and <laughs> uh and, and that is you all right so you're now a, you're now a kid from from Colorado and as a kid from Colorado you were you were trained to uh to be tick aware and I'm just wondering whether or not uh, Lyme disease and tick diseases were a part of the curriculum that you studied as a nurse. 
you know, it was not, it was not drilled into you like it should have been, you know, you learn all about the symptoms like respiratory and all of those illnesses. You have a whole book of anatomy and physiology going over the whole body and, you know, here's these illnesses, you know, like it's just, it's not in the curriculum. And I wish it would be, especially because half the time when you go and talk to somebody about it, they're like, what's Lyme disease? What's a tick-borne illness? Well, right. And in your case, Katie, um, while you were going through your education and while you were becoming a medical professional, it would have been great had you been introduced to these topics so you could have diagnosed yourself, right? But you weren't able to do that because it was not a part of your education or your training, right? So now now what you just shared with, with Jen is you went through what our good friend Phyllis Bedford, who we just interviewed today or Matt had interviewed today with our good friend Christina Kovacs, she talked about shop uh, supermarket diagnoses that most people when they get a Lyme disease diagnosis get diagnosed in the supermarket they bump into somebody that they know and the person says oh I know somebody who has the same symptoms that you have my brother my sister my daughter me and you sound really limey which is what the other thing we see in you know on social media more people are diagnosed in the supermarket and on social media than they are by medical professionals and that's what happened with you despite you going to scores of doctors going through medical training yourself, becoming a registered nurse yourself. You didn't have the tools to diagnose yourself. It was bumping into somebody who had an understanding of what Lyme disease was because of a practical experience that put you in a position where you had to start begging for a Lyme test. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, it was so discouraging to me that I went to multiple doctors and I said, I think I have Lyme disease. I think I have Lyme disease. And they're like, no, no, no. And then finally in September, I went to this great doctor who now I've been like seen for treatment and stuff. I went to him and I said, I don't care how much it costs. I don't care what we have to do, but I know I have Lyme disease. It's not just, I think I do now. It's, I know I do. And I would like a test. And finally tested me. (laughs) Okay. But you're, you know, the way you described it to Jen, and Jen's going to begin to take you through your treatment journey in a minute. But the way you described it to Jen a moment ago is you had to beg for a test. You are a nurse. You are a traditionally trained medical professional. You're interfacing with colleagues who are traditionally educated medical professionals. And it wasn't you just saying to a colleague, hey, colleague, I believe based on my medical training and based on my education and based on my symptoms that I should be tested for a particular disease. That's not what happened here. You had to take the supermarket diagnosis and then get on your hands and knees and beg a colleague to give you a test, right? Right. And you think that would happen happen with anything else other than Lyme disease? I mean, if you walked in and said, hey, you know, I have arthritis in my knee and I need you to give me X test. You think a doctor would push back on that? Definitely. I I 100% agree. I think it's because it's not well known. It's not something that first comes to mind. They're like, well, why would I waste my time doing this test when I'm almost 90% sure you're not going to have it? But what about that other 10% chance? All right. So, so, so it's your sense that the reason, um, the reason they were um, resistant to this is because either they didn't believe you had Lyme disease or they had some other reason to be resistant to it. And, uh, and because of that, this was really a situation where you were, you were begging for a test. Yes. 
Now, did you ask for a particular type of test? Did you were you did you do any research on testing? And did you did you ask for um, you know the Western blot, the ELISA? Did you ask for uh, you know maybe one of these other tests like an hygienic test? I mean, what kind of test did you want? Or did you just say, hey, test me for Lyme disease? And um, and um, and how did that piece of the test go? I honestly was just whatever they could give me, I would have taken. I wasn't super specific. I wasn't, I want the eye blot. I want the eigenics. You know, I was like, I just want to be tested for Lyme disease. However you do it, I just want to get tested. Whatever we find out, we find out. Um, so I did end up getting the eigenics one. That's the one that they tested me with. Okay, awesome. So Jen again. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I am curious. So you you were going through all this nurse training, you were still having symptoms, you sounds like you probably started feeling a little bit worse. And mm -hmm. one of your friends posted about their Lyme journey and you were like, oh my gosh, this sounds familiar, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you're just going everywhere, asking people for a Lyme test. People are literally saying no. They're yes. not going to take a simple, do a simple blood test, mm -hmm. which is so, I mean, this happens all the time to Lyme patients. Um, even in Lyme endemic areas, doctors are just like, no, it couldn't be that. I'm not going to even waste my time testing you. Like what the hell? Who just you're not paying for the test, sir? Like my insurance will cover it. Just click the right box on this piece of paper. It's so bizarre. But to have them saying this to a registered nurse is just—I mean, it's inexcusable. So you get your hygienics test, and um, you're Lyme positive. So what's? Uh, did you have some co-infections on that test, or? Uh, was it just Borrelia? Yeah. So it was kind of a, a crazy day when it happened. I got the email notification that my test results were in and I, I was sitting down and I was with my mom and I was just, you know, I thought to myself, I was like, I know that this test is going to be positive. I don't even have to really look at it, you know? But then as I was reading it and I was going through, it was like, I have IgG and IgM. And to me, that was crazy. You know, it wasn't just, you have one, you have both right, and, and chronic markers yeah exactly and so I knew that it was going to be positive I just didn't know how bad it was going to be um so like reading that test you know I just kind of like sank down and I was like well first of all I knew it <laughs> second of all what do I do now you know like is this doctor going to treat me um like what's the game plan I had no idea what I was going to do where I was going to do it at if the doctor that tested me could even help treat me for, for my Lyme disease. So it was just kind of like a, a huge wave came over. So me it sounds it, like you got these results on your own. You weren't in the doctor's office mm -hmm. having someone read them to you. You were on your own, yeah. like pulled them up on the computer and just had this burden suddenly <laughs> of what to do. Um, yeah. So did you get a hold of that doctor? Did that doctor end up um, seeing you for this or? Yeah. So after I received the email notification and kind of went over all of my blood work, I did end up calling him. Um, and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm sure you saw the results. I just saw them. What do we do now? Um, and so we, the very first thing that we did was we put me on doxycycline, um, the antibiotic, and that did not go over well. My body hated it. 
And I mean, hated it to the point of like, I was having super bad reactions to it. My body had a rash all over from it. You know, I was in pain constantly. My stomach was completely wrecked even more than it already was. Um, so I was really excited to be treated, right? I had this little bottle of antibiotics and I thought this will kick it, this will do it. And then having all of that happen to my body, I was like, well, what now? <laughs> That's great. Like immediately, uh, like the first pill you took, you had a terrible reaction or. It was probably after my third dose. So that third day of taking it, where I noticed first, it was like a little rash on my leg. And I was like, oh, it causes um, an allergy to the sun. I'm sorry. What was that? Did they tell you that it causes an allergy to the sun? Yes. Yeah. So you weren't just like sunbathing? (laughs) No. And I got, I started getting treatment in October of 2021. So I got my test in September and then I started treatment in October. And this is Um, all in Colorado? Yep. All in Colorado. Yeah. Um, so after that doxycycline reaction, we took me off of it and we started ozone treatments, the IV ozone UBI. Um, it was super fascinating to me, you know, me with my little medical background, I was like, yeah, stick it in my arm. Let me watch it do like, you know, have it go through the light. I was like, this is so cool. Um, and so I did that for a couple of months. I ended up stopping in January. Uh, I have this condition also, which is called the MTHFR gene. It's the blood clotting gene. Um, and the ozone UBI thickened my blood to a point that they were concerned about blood clots and stroke. So, yes, yeah, um, I, I have, have MTHFR and, um, you might be interested in Bob Miller's work. He does some okay. really cool uh, research around the genetics of, uh, people with chronic Lyme mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we can talk more about that offline, but I'll nerd out with you on that. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of Lyme patients have this MTHFR gene. Yeah. Um, and so after, you know, we took me off of that, I was kind of back to square one again, you know, like tried doxy didn't work, tried ozone UBI had to be taken off of that. And I felt just so discouraged because I was super hopeful at the beginning. You know, I was thinking to myself, I will take all my medication as I'm supposed to. I'll get these IV treatments once a week and I'll be kicking it like, you know, a boss, you know, and I'll, I'll be so at this point, are you, you're sure that you, you've linked it to your childhood illness? Like, you know, like I have been dealing with this for a very long time. Oh yes. Yeah. After I got in your mind, you're just like, no, it's going to be fine. I just need the magic bullet and I'm going to get over it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. After I got the diagnosis, I was, you know, thinking back to all of my medical history and all of the weight gain, weight loss, the hormone imbalances, the irritability, you know, being tired all of the time and having muscle and joint pain and cognitive problems, it all just sort of meshed together to create this perfect storm where I was thinking like that had to be Lyme because I don't know what else it would have been, you know? Um, yeah, it was crazy. Just a whole realization of it all coming together. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so you're, you know, you've been doing this IV, um, treatment and they're telling you, oh my gosh, we think you're, you're susceptible to clots. Like we can't do this anymore. So what's the next step after that? 
So after that, we put me on a lot of herbal medications. Um, so I have like a whole box full of it that I'm supposed to take twice a day. And then after that, and I have been taking those medications for about two months, I get a die off rash and it was super intense to where my whole body was covered head to toe. And it had just like sores all over to the point where showering hurt it, putting on clothes made it worse. Um, And at that point I did have to go on short-term disability leave for my job because I I couldn't even put on my scrubs in the morning, you know, like putting on. I would not even imagine you were working this whole time. So, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Uh, yeah. Wow. 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 So the herbal treatment that you were doing, was it a specific protocol? Like they've got, you know, Byron white protocol, Cowden protocol. Is it anything like that? Or is that, is it something your doctor kind of built specifically for you? It was something that my doctor specifically built for me. Um, it was just like a concoction of a whole bunch of things that he thought that would, you know, help my body. Tinctures Tinctures or pills or pills. Pills. Yes. Um, and the doctor's office that I go to also does muscle testing. So it was kind of like a specific treatment plan for me and what my body needed and wanted. Uh, so it was a really cool process to go through, you know, especially going from like Western medicine to this more like, we're going to muscle test you to see how your body will react to it. It was a really neat process. Uh, so that's kind of how telling you to do like a specific diet or like detox or anything else to support your body through this, or they're just like, here's a herbal protocol. See you so, right. Um, I was told to obviously stay off gluten, which I had been for years before that. So I was like, that's no problem. You know, I wouldn't eat it even, even if I wanted to, um, lower my sugar intake, lower my coffee intake, all of that stuff. So, and I'm a huge coffee drinker. I mean, I survive on coffee. And so in order to not have to drink three cups a day, I was like, well, I mean, maybe I can survive off of one. Um, so that's kind of the the health aspect that they did for eating and stuff like that. Um, one other thing that I was diagnosed with when I was diagnosed with Lyme was alpha gal syndrome. And so I have that allergen to meat and it was also really crazy for me to kind of have to switch where I get my protein source from because I love red meat. I would eat it almost every single day combined with Turkey combined with, you know, pork and all of that. And not being able to eat that stuff was really hard, especially when from previous years, I've had a really big love hate relationship with food. Um, just because of the huge weight gain and weight loss that I've went through having to tell my mind and my body that I can't eat a certain food group was really hard on me mentally. Cause I've been trying to have a better relationship with eating and what I'm putting in my body and not restricting my diet. So have, having to go back to restricting it was really mentally hard on me. And I almost was kind of in the mindset of when I was back when I was diagnosed with anorexia. Yeah, I can imagine that is very triggering. Um, Did your doctor provide you any resources to help you through that or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they gave me a whole booklet, um, you know, about eating and how to have a good relationship with food and your body. And they also like gave me a breakdown of like good meals for good protein sources now that I couldn't have meat. So I eat a lot of beans. um, And I also eat a lot of fish. So fatty acids are, are my best friend. Like I love salmon. 
salmon is something that I eat on a regular basis. So they did give me a lot of resources to help with what I need to eat to get that nutrients every day that I'm now not getting from, from meat. Yeah. But wow. I mean, just the emotional aspect is just so overwhelming and, um, yeah. Oh, I was going to say something and I lost it. Um, so you are doing all these herbal treatments and you said you mentioned you got like a skin rash. Mm -hmm. And so did you yeah. have to break from the herbals then or? We slowly started to take things out and see if my rash got better, take things out, add things back in. So we could try and see which medications was causing that die off rash. Um, and in the midst of that, we did find. With the MTHFR, have they given you any specific mm -hmm. detox instructions? Because a lot of times, especially with skin stuff, it's, it's a sign that the toxins aren't getting out any other way. So they're going to press out of your skin. So, mm -hmm. um, a lot of Lyme patients find just doing like saline enemas, um, binders, like, uh, activated charcoal or, um, call cholera, <laughs> chlorella. <Chlorella. laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't take cholera. Um, <laughs> but yeah, these binding, um, agents, can help to just get it out of us because one of the problems with that MTHFR is you're just not detoxing properly. So as you're taking these antimicrobials and killing stuff, you're killing the stuff off more faster than you can get rid of it. So, right. Yeah. And they put me on, um, a whole bunch of stuff that was going to help detox me. And one of them was also to help with my antihistamine reaction to it. And it's a little bottle called Masties. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's like been my best friend. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm on, um, course certain not really oh, helps okay. me with the histamine um, yeah. stuff as well. And that's another, like such a common, um, progression of Lyme disease causes this mast cell activation syndrome or histamine intolerance. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's so it's triggered by foods and, the air. And, you know, once that histamine bucket gets full, you're going to start having some rashes and some problems. Yeah. Um, so to, when you got, you know, back to this alpha gal syndrome, did you find that out the hard way? Did you get like an anaphylactic reaction? Yeah, I definitely found out the hard way before I positive tested positive for alpha gal. I was eating a cheeseburger and all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, my chest feels all tight. I was getting swollen everywhere. My lips were blue and my stomach, I kid you not, expanded to the size of where you would think I was nine months pregnant. Like it was just massive. Wow. And at that point I was like, I do not know what's wrong because I have like, I was using a lettuce wrap. There was no gluten anywhere. Um, and I just like, I didn't understand what was wrong. And so after that, I was like, well, maybe it's meat. So I didn't eat meat for like the last three days before I got that test. And I was like, my stomach feels a lot better. I feel way less bloated. I, you know, like a, my chest has been feeling like it's been lifted. I, I can breathe a lot better. Um, and then I got tested for alpha gal. That was another thing that I had to beg for. Um, when I went to my doctor, I was like, I think I have an allergen to meat. And they're like, I have never heard of someone being allergic to meat. You know, that's, that's weird. And I was like, no, I, I legit think I have an allergy to meat. 
And they tested me and sure enough, it came back that I am allergic to like pork, lamb, uh, turkey, bison, beef, you name it, all of those meats. I was just like, ant can't have. Oh no. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And it's so bizarre when it happens just so suddenly like that, you didn't have any like minor reactions prior to this cheeseburger incident. I had a minor, you know, stomach discomfort, you know, where it did, you know, kind of bloat, but with my history and my stomach pains, I thought, oh, maybe I'm just having a stomach episode is what I called them. Um, you know, having these stomach episodes my whole life, I thought that's what it was. And, you know, maybe my stomach was just going through a hard time, or maybe I was extra stressed and that was causing my gut to be unhealthy. Um, but never to the point of where like, I couldn't put on my pants to go to the doctor. That's how bad my stomach Can you think it's possible that you were suffering from the alpha gal allergy since your early childhood? And then what happened during this one incident where you bit into the, uh, you bit into the, um, the hamburger that you that you got the reaction that you did that your your allergy just progressed or do you think it was uh that the allergy developed as a result of a tick bite generally it would be a lone star tick but a tick bite from a uh a tick just prior to the uh the anaphylaxis event I definitely think it was something that I was struggling with all the way back, you know, when I was younger. And that would explain a lot of my stomach problems, why I could never keep food down, why I was having such stomach pain, why I was having this bloating, you know, why I had to have five colonoscopies by the age of 18 years old, you know, and that's just like, it's crazy that only until I was 22 did I get diagnosed with that. So when you were taking all of these tests with the gastroenterologist and the other doctors that you were you were testing with during your childhood, and then all, again all the way up until the alpha gal test, did you did any doctor ever find anything wrong with your gut, um, or was it just coming back un uh, you know unsubstantiated and they just didn't know what was wrong with you? nothing ever came up that was super concerning in any of my colonoscopies. They were all just, you could have celiac disease, but we can't really tell because you haven't had gluten in so long. Um, We're going to tell you, you have IBS. We're going to put you in this broad spectrum and we're going to slap a bandaid on it and call it good. And that's all they ever did for me. Right. So, so you have all these doctors who are testing you for different gut issues. No one ever, no one ever suspects that it's possible that you are suffering from a tick disease from a, from a meat allergy. Uh, You're now looking back and thinking that perhaps it was meat that was connected to these, to these events. Uh, What about your, your uh, medical training? Uh, Were you ever, were you ever introduced to the concept of a meat allergy and alpha gal and, and Lone Star ticks causing this type of um, of a problem? I mean, I was, you know, educated about allergens and stuff like that, but meat was never one of the ones that you would think of to teach, right? It's like, there's peanut allergies, there's soy allergies, there's all of those major allergies, but then there's those ones that are kind of like a one-off situation, right? Like they happen, people are allergic to them, but they're not necessarily something that's so broad spectrum that we need to hone in on. And again, that's due to the lack of training that they train these medical professionals on. And I think that there needs to be something built into the curriculum where you go over all of this stuff. Yeah, or at least have it as part of the checklist, right? Because you were all during your childhood, you're you're suffering from various gut issues. They're giving you different diagnostic tests. The tests are not coming back positive with anything, and they never even come down to the checklist. And say, 
hey, maybe we should check this kid for allergies. Hey, maybe we should recommend to this child's parents that she, uh, you know, maybe remove certain foods from her diet to see if that's, you know, if it's triggering. I mean, like nothing at all. It's just like, all right, the test is not positive or it's not really positive and we don't know what to do. So they just send you on your way and you're engaging in the same behavior. But you're, but you're again, I'm using the, the, the metaphor, the onboard diagnostic system that you had built into your system from when you were a child, kept screaming out to the medical professionals. Your parents were giving that information to them. You were giving that information to them. And when the tests were not coming back with any positive results, they were, they didn't even have it. They didn't even have alpha gal as a part of the checklist. I know. Yeah. It's crazy to me, especially like as a young child, you're taught to just take that, you know, you, it's hard to fight back and say, no, something is wrong with me when you are 10 years old. Right. And I think that it's just, it carries on to adult life too. If you don't speak your mind, if you don't finally speak up and say, I know something's wrong with me. I want a diagnosis. I want you to test me for this. And it's so hard to then go from being a child who was medically gaslighted and who was not listened to, how are they going to grow up and be successful in their adult life? If all that they have ever been told is it's all in your head, you know, like, you're fine. You have IBS. There's nothing we can do about it. Stop eating, you know, gluten, even though you already have, you know, stay away from dairy. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Even as an adult, you're gaslit so much. You start to think, well, yeah, they're probably right. You know, um, I, especially as a child that you were trying and you were trying and you were trying and they were teaching you, Hey, this isn't going to work. So you may Mm -hmm. as well keep your mouth shut, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, could, could you put a number on how many doctors you think you saw before you got this Lyme diagnosis? Oh gosh. I mean, just when I was in children's hospital, I must've seen like 10 different doctors there. Um, and then not including, you know, all of the primary care providers I switched to. Um, if I had to give it like a broad number, I would maybe say like 30, 35. Yep. And not a single Lyme test between them wild right so it looks like here you put down you have four different strains of Borrelia showed up on the hygienics yes wow um but no you didn't have any other co-infections I did not no yeah rich as rich mentioned um the Lone Star Tick is believed to be spreading that alpha gal Mm -hmm. so and they say uh, uh Lone Star doesn't transmit Borrelia yeah, right. I, know. I believe I was bitten by a Lone Star as well. And I have two different strains of Borrelia and Ehrlichiosis. Okay. Um, I don't know. Uh- but Jenna, I, I do think, you know, in, in fairness, uh, it, it is probably unlikely that Borrelia is going to be transmitted by a Lone Star tick, although some more enlightened labs are starting to test Lone Star ticks for Borrelia. But it's more likely, quite frankly, that both of you are bitten by multiple ticks. Um, or in Katie's case, uh, you know, she may have even she, you know, her parents may have Lyme disease, and she may have she may be one of the congenital Lyme patients who, you know, had you know some strains of Borrelia, you know, baked into her when she was, you know, when when she was um, in utero, and then gotten bitten by a lone star tick later. I mean, there's just so many of these different permutations that you know, that, that, um, you know, that we see certainly on this podcast, 
that, um, you know, and we, you know, like, like, uh, you know, Katie's experience, most of the people we interview do not recall having been bitten by a tick, right? Does that mean that it's more likely it's congenital? I'm not so sure I, I buy into that theory, that can, but just my personal theory. Uh, I just think we're getting bitten by ticks all the time. And because we're not trained to properly check for ticks, um, and we're not doing it consistently, we, you know, we, we just find ourselves in a position where we have all of this in us. So my, if I were, to, if I were a betting man, and I'm not, um, but my bet would be that Katie's been bitten by many ticks, and that's why she has so many strains of Borrelia. Right. Yeah, I agree. And it's, um, you know, they're so freaking small. These ticks are so small. Their bite is painless. And what do they say? There's like at any given time, there's 10 spiders near you, you know, it's like, well, probably the same with tips. Sorry to freak anybody out, but. Um, good thing I'm not scared of spiders. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why these doctors are like, oh no, it's, there's Lyme in that County. There's not any Lyme here. It's like, what? I was on Vancouver Island, Canada, talking to somebody and they were like, oh yeah, the other side of the Island has Lyme, but we don't have any Lyme here. I'm like, but you have deer. Yeah. And you have squirrels. Yeah. And you have humans moving around with dogs. Yeah. And you have birds. Yeah. Well, <laughs> guess what? Your whole island has it. One part of the island. No, Jen, they cut off the island. The All the wildlife is on one side of the island and the other side of the island has no wildlife. This county is clear. Don't worry. Everybody adheres to these invisible boundaries. Right. Uh, yeah. Wild. Um, yeah, so 35 doctors, at least, probably more, probably block yeah. some of those out of your memory, I'm sure. Right, um, definitely. <laughs> so many misdiagnoses. Can you kind of just give us a little shopping list of some of the misdiagnoses you had? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I got diagnosed with that hypopituitarism. I've had multiple other MRIs and they still haven't been able to find that mysterious tumor that was growing on my pituitary gland. Um, arthritis, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, which who knows if I actually have that too. Um, they said that I don't have the protein in my body to break down lactose. Um, uh, and then just like depression and anxiety and anorexia and eating disorders and all of that, which, you know, broad spectrum, it can all be placed in line, which is crazy that, you know, all of these several different diagnoses can all just be covered by this one illness that was never tested for. Absolutely. You could line up the symptoms and check them all off. Lyme has over 300 symptoms and it does cause psychological, it causes brain inflammation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're going to get depressed. You're going to have anxiety. You're going to have all these issues. And, um, and especially if you're getting reactions from food, mm -hmm. you're going to get anorexia. Like we don't, you know, <laughs> it's right. just, yeah. I mean, wow. It's just these umbrella terms, like you say, and it's kind of just like, a way for them to write us off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you got your hygienics test and you've done all these herbal treatments and um, kind of where are you now? How are you feeling now? Are you still kind of keeping up on these herbal treatments? Have you switched to something else? Mm -hmm. um, I'm doing way better than I was back in December of 2021. I mean, looking back on where I was at in my journey then is just astonishing to me. 
Um, like I look at pictures and I don't even necessarily recognize the girl in those pictures because I was struggling so bad with mental and physical issues. Uh, so I'm super thankful that even though I don't feel a hundred percent, I'm still better than that. Um, so I mean, I am taking all of those medications. We have been kind of changing things up. I'm on azithromycin, which is a different antibiotic uh, for the pure fact of I've had some flare-ups recently that have not been so great. Uh, so I'll wake up and I'll have, you know, a rash kind of all on my upper body again. And when I get that, I just get super discouraged. So I'm like, I thought I was done with that. I thought I was over that. Um, and same with, you know, like mental and cognitive things. I've noticed my vision has been changing a little bit more. I've had to wear glasses all of a sudden, which is, you know, kind of frustrating and my hands will go numb, but I am doing a lot better than I was. And it's hard to tell yourself that when you're still not your best, but you're still better than you were. Uh, so it's all about mindset and mentality and going easy on yourself. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you're currently still in treatment. Um, it sounds like you're still doing the herbals. Are you doing any other kind of, um, support for that or, um, uh, so I had a machine that was like a microcurrent machine that I would hook myself up to, uh, two times a day. And I used that for around four weeks I had to send it back to the place that I got it from because they had another patient needing it. Um, I am hopefully going to get it back in return. It helped a lot with my nerve pain and a lot with, you know, my hands not going numb as much. So uh, I'm doing that on top of the antibiotics and the herbal treatments. Uh, and is we, it a Rife machine or what is it? Do you know what it's called? Oh, it's, I think it's called microcurrent. I don't know exactly the brand of it. Um, I could definitely look it up though. And I could send it in a little chat. I mean, I, I've thought that it's helped a lot. Uh, I didn't know I was kind of skeptical at first. I was like, how can I just put these little two pads on my stomach and my, my neck and have it make my joints feel better, but it definitely did. Uh, so I was super thankful for that. And we did discuss kind of doing another IV sort of treatment, but we just don't know when I'll be doing that, especially because we need to watch my, my blood clotting levels to make sure that what happened previously does not happen again. So, right. And all of this is out of pocket as well, right? I mean, it is. This is a lot. <laughs> this it is. is a lot. Yeah. Insurance does not cover Lyme protocol, which you think it would or should. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole podcast in and of itself, right? Well, but you, but you know what? We touched on that. So, so Katie, are there any no or low cost treatment options that you're using? Because a big issue that we deal with in the community, and one of the things that holds folks back from taking action on their journey, is the belief that if they don't have a lot of money, they can't they can't heal. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we've we've sort of stepped back on posting about celebrities because a lot of folks in the community, rather than being inspired by celebrities are using celebrities as a, as, as a vehicle for um, creating awareness. Uh, the, the reaction that we get from our community is, well, of course they're gonna get better because they have unlimited resources, which is simply in our view and in our, you know, in our experience, not true, but what low cost and no cost options would you recommend to folks in the community that you've tried that have been helpful to you? I mean, something that's low cost or no cost at all, I would say is the whole process of cutting down foods that cause inflammation, right? So that's 
pretty easy to do when no cost or zero cost, you know, it's just really watching what you eat and maybe not buying those spicy Cheetos that you know you love uh, because those can cause a lot of inflammation in your body. So that's just like an easy go-to, you know, cut down on the processed foods that you're eating. Also switching your coffee, you know, to water. That's also something that I've noticed that's really helped me a lot. Um, low cost, there is this brand of like herbs that I use called standard processing. And instead of buying them online where they can hike up the price, I buy them from local doctor's offices here that sell them. Um, and they're great. I love them. They, they have a lot of different ones for what you're looking for. Like they have a lot that's immune support, a lot that's for thyroid support. Uh, I really love those. So one of the things I, I wanted to visit with you is um, is the observations that Matt and I have made based on the successes that people have had on their treatment journey. Uh, we, we've actually come up with something we're calling the POM, P-A-R-M. Uh, P -A -R -M. Uh, as an Italian, we make everything like about Parmesan. So, um, but anyway, the, uh, that's right. So, um, and and so our our POM um, framework is prehabilitation, assist rehabilitation and maintenance. And they seem to be the four steps that we see successful people using. So in the prehabilitation arena, you're getting yourself ready for the fight you're about to you're about to engage in, right? So when Jen, for example, was in the military, they didn't just say, hey, Jen, go out and, uh, and, and fight the fight, right? She went into basic training and she went through the process of getting ready to develop the skills and the, and the, and the, um, and the, of course, the, um, the fitness and the mental state in order to be able to go out and do the job that she was going to be doing as a member of the armed forces, right? Well, what we're seeing with people who are successful um, in this, in this journey is that they go through a prehabilitation phase, which it sounds like you didn't go through that your doctors didn't take you through. They gave you the kill stuff right away. Right. Mm -hmm. And your body wasn't ready. And of course I saw Jen's eyes open up because she did recommend to you to, you know, to think about doing some testing to find out what your genetic predisposition is, which wasn't offered to you. Right. And Bob Miller, for example, who is a guest on our podcast is a wonderful resource for that. Right. But what we're also seeing is, one of the first things that people do, as you had just described, is they clean up their diet, right? And they make sure that their diet is really clean. And I think a really simple rule here, and it's a free rule, is if it doesn't look the way it looks in nature, you shouldn't eat it, right? Any processed food, you shouldn't be eating. If it's a piece of meat that looks like a piece of meat in nature, eat it. If it was processed, don't eat it. If it's a vegetable look that looks the way it looks like in, 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 in nature, eat it. If it doesn't, it doesn't, right? So that's a pretty simple rule, but you clean up your diet, right? You're getting the caffeine out. You're getting, the, you know, you're getting those things out of your diet, right? Now, the second thing that I want to ask you about is we learned from Dr. Vera Scano, who, who's one of the, you know, Lyme pioneers um, and actually um, started his practice out here in the, you know, in, on Long Island in the 70s, uh, long before either one of you were born, um, the... Um, he said, if you didn't move, you didn't heal. I mean, the exercise was a vital part of healing. Now, again, another one of the things I saw Jen's eyes lining up when you were talking about your about your your detox issues is and, 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 and the lack of first diagnosing that and then dealing with that in advance of, you know, putting all of these, um, you know, these dead bacteria in your body. 
Um, you know, were you were you given any information about movement, and and are you doing any movement to assist you with the detox elements of your of your treatment? I do a lot of walking. Um, I used to be a huge fan of running. I mean, I ran track. I did cross country. I was in the 800 and I I did great. But because of how bad my joints hurt now, um, walking has become my best friend. So Uh, are you doing it every day, Katie? I am. Yes. I try to do it twice a day. Actually, I, you know, in the morning and or at night and on my lunch break at work, I'll just go ahead and I'll walk because I'll eat my my food at my desk. So yeah, right. it's been so, great. So, so we, we have moved actually Dr. Bill Rawls, who is, you know, the famous, um, famous doctor and author. Uh, he actually did a, a, a Lyme hack for us last year. And he said he walked himself to health, that it was actually the walking that was the most important thing that he did on his journey, right? Now let's talk about sleep, because that's another important element of what we consider an important piece of the prehabilitation. How are you sleeping and have you taken any steps to improve your sleep? Because that's going to be important for you both from an energy standpoint, but it's also going to be important for you from a brain standpoint, because generally our brain is going through the, um, you're going through a healing process when we're sleeping, certainly if we are sleeping in the right place. So how are you sleeping and did anyone give you any, um, any tools to assist you with your sleeping? Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of my biggest things with Lyme is I've had insomnia in the past. So I'll be like super tired and I'll start to go to bed and I just cannot sleep. Um, now I have been trying to take, uh, like sleep aid supports. So either like CBD gummies or, you know, a light dose of melatonin, whatever I can to just kind of calm my body down. Um, and those have really helped. I've also been limiting my screen exposure right before I go to bed. So I have my phone on auto to turn on, do not disturb at eight o'clock at night, no matter what no matter what I'm doing. So when I'm finishing up getting ready for a night, I stick my phone in my drawer plugged in. So it's not even in my eyesight. Um, and that's really helped as well. And so now I do get around eight to seven hours of sleep, which is amazing for me compared to what I was, I would be up every three hours and then sleep for like an hour and then up every three hours. Um, So I think just limiting the exposure that you have to those harsh lights and also to all of that social media that you kind of consume at night when you're bored, uh, it's definitely really helped just kind of pushing that aside. So another no cost uh, set of tools that you can use and certainly all during your treatment journey and your healing journey is you can have a pattern that you'll put in place for going to sleep. That pattern will include turning, having no access or uh, contact with your social media for several hours before you go to bed, making sure you're limiting your screen time, and then maybe using some kind of a tool that will that will help you, whether it be CBD or some other tools that can help you uh, to go off to sleep. Again, no cost or very, very low cost to that. All right. Now, let me ask you about two other things that, you know, that we see here on the prehabilitation phase of this, in addition to the testing with working with somebody like Bob Miller. Um, who's a traditional naturopath and a really brilliant guy, Um, uh, focusing on your movement, focusing on your diet, focusing on your sleep. Now let's talk about two other things. And that is uh, any testing for heavy metals and any testing for mold, either in your environment or in you. Any of that uh, testing take place before your doctors gave you doxy to start to kill the microbes in your body. So it was not, um, I was not tested for any of that before I started Doxy. Um, After I had that huge die off rash, that huge reaction, I did get muscle tested for heavy metals and for mold. 
um, and mold toxicity came back in when I did my muscle testing. And that was something that was, you know, kind of like scary almost because it was just, why wasn't I tested before all of this? You know, why did I have to have this reaction in order for them to test me for mold? Um, and so I recently just moved into a new house. It was built in 1908. So it was a very, very old house. And the first thing I did was I got a dog in there to sniff for mold because I didn't want to go through the whole renovation process, you know, and not check for mold later to find out that, oh my gosh, my house has mold and I've been living in it. And that's why I have all of these symptoms. Um, and so I'm actually really glad that I did that because they found mold in the house and we were able to remedy it before I started the renovations. So I wish I would have been tested before, but I'm glad I did when I did. Okay. So now the second phase, which we actually call assist rather than kill, because our focus what we see, again, people who are successful in focusing on this are generally assisting their immune system, meaning they're not killing the, the microbes. Their immune system is killing the microbes, but sometimes the microbe load is so high that the immune system has become overwhelmed, which is why you become toxically ill, right? I mean, so chronically ill, you're, bec you're becoming toxic, right? So um, in the assist phase here, which you sort of just jumped into with your, your doctors, they gave you the doxy, the doxy didn't work, right? Now, when, when the doxy didn't work, did the doctors talk to you about why the doxy didn't work? And did they prepare you for the impact that doxy was going to have, especially on your gut? Meaning, did they say to you, hey, doxy is really rough on your gut and you should be taking um, probiotics? Did they say doxy is really difficult in your gut and there's certain things you should be eating or drinking before the doxy? Or they just say, hey, take this medicine and you're going to get all better. What was, what was that like? They did let me know since my previous stomach issues that doxy could be very, very harsh on my body. Uh, so from the get go, they told me, hey, you need to really be careful about what you're eating, what you're drinking. Um, and also, yeah, take this probiotic. Uh, and so I knew right from the get go that it was going to be rough on my stomach. I just didn't. I, I underestimated how rough it was going to be, you know, because I thought, oh, I've been dealing with stomach issues my whole life. It's not going to be a big deal. And then it just like, it was terrible. Okay. I actually wanted to ask you another question about the prehabilitation before you get into the- yeah. Can I jump in here real quick? Sure, please. please. It's a so, conversation. The, it kind of sounds like they didn't really explain to you why Doxy would make you feel worse with Lyme disease. They started testing you for other things. They were like, oh, she's got this crazy reaction because of something else, right? They weren't like, oh, yeah, Lyme causes these gnarly die-off reactions. That could actually cause a seizure, seizure or stroke and actually kill you. Um, mm -hmm. They just were like, oh, I think you've got mold or um, heavy metals. Yeah, exactly. Wow, yeah. Okay, sorry. Just <laughs> no, no, it's, it's awesome observation. I mean, it's just so frustrating, right? There's, there's, a, there's another piece of this in the in the prehab piece that I didn't talk to you about, which is, uh, again, this is not no and low cost, but it probably would be covered by, by health insurance. And that is, uh, did anyone talk to you about working with a with a psychologist or psychiatrist or a social worker or, or a coach that could help you with the emotional elements of this, right? Because one of the things that we've seen is that very few of us understand what our body signals are telling us, right? And that's what we sometimes call emotions, right? And with the people who have been successful on this journey, very early on in the journey, they start to work with someone who can help them understand their signals and understand their emotions, whether it be, again, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or, or a social worker, or a coach. Anybody encourage you to bring one of those folks onto your team before you went into this 
killing off all this uh, stuff that was in your body? Uh, no doctor mentioned that to me at all. I had previously been seeing a therapist just, you know, from the age of 16. Uh, so it definitely was on my mind that I needed to have, you know, that support person there to help talk with me, you know, because just going to family members can get really emotionally exhausting on them as well, just because they're your only outlet, right? You're explaining all the stuff you're divulging in them, how you're feeling. And it's not only rough on them, but it's rough on you as well, because then you kind of feel bad about telling them about all of this, you know, bringing them into it. Um, so no doctor ever mentioned to me, Hey, let's set you up with, you know, a psychiatrist or someone to talk to about it, uh, which is super frustrating, but I, at least from previous years had been seeing a therapist before. So it was just kind of second nature to want to have that person to talk to. And did you bring that person onto your team at some point on this journey? Yes. Yeah. And how, how helpful has it been to have a mental health professional on your team? It's been great. I mean, the dealing with this on your own, I feel like would be impossible, especially just because you sometimes don't even know your own thoughts or your own feelings. So sitting down and talking with someone, that's how you finally discover, you know, what are my true feelings? What are my true thoughts? And you're sitting in front of a person and you get to be so vulnerable that things just kind of flow out that you didn't even know you were bottling up inside. All right, so now let's collect the two. Let, let's connect the mental health professionals you're working with and the allopathic or the, uh, again, I don't, I don't know what kind of professionals you're working with with your, uh, with your medical treatment. Now, are they now coming together for you? Meaning when you're talking with your uh, mental health professional, is that person saying to you, hey, listen to your emotions? What are they telling you about the treatment that you're doing and how do you use it as feedback with the medical professionals that you're, that you're working with so that your treatment plan can be altered so that it meets your particular needs at that particular moment? Mm -hmm. I think that they do a great job of helping me realize that I need to advocate for myself. Um, you know, they tell me that you have to be the person to tell them that it's not working because they don't know unless you tell them. Uh, so they're a very big proponent of you are your biggest fan, your biggest advocate in this whole journey. You know, they aren't living in your body. They don't know what you're feeling. So you have to express that to them in order to have a treatment that's built for you specifically to help you. Okay. But I think it's more than that, Katie. I, I think as a threshold matter, there is this element of, you know, your body better than anyone else. And you need to advocate for yourself, which is true. But then the next piece of that is, well, what does advocating for yourself mean? What that means is you have the onboard diagnostic system. Your emotions are telling you something and you have to read those emotions and read what those signals mean so that you can now use that as input into the process of determining whether or not what you're using is working or not. Right. So some of that may mean, hey, we have to go take a step back and go into prehab so that we're getting ourselves ready to now assist our body by introducing whether they be herbal treatments or or um, or traditional pharmaceuticals to now assist our body by killing off some of these microbes. Right. You may not be ready for that. And your and your emotions may be telling you that. But if you're not listening to that and you're not passing that on to your doctor and your doctor is not listening to that, then, you know, they may think what they're doing is working uh, when in fact it's not going to work. 
Yeah, exactly. So were you able to do that now, again, as a trained traditional medical profession who has had experience with working with mental health professionals, have you been able to do that and to help your doctors to understand what is and is not working for you? At the beginning, it was really hard for me to do that because I I didn't know a whole lot about it myself either. So I was thinking, how do I know that my feelings and my thoughts are true? How do I get to this rehabilitation process to then move forward? So at first it was extremely hard and I didn't know how to do that quite yet. Um, but after kind of, you know, reading about all the stuff that you need to do in order to make your treatment successful and listening to other people who have done that, I realized I need to put first my mental health. I need to put first my physical health and just know that I'm secure and where I'm at first and do all of the things that will then help me finish my treatment and be well in the treatment that I'm doing to make sure that I can properly listen to my body and, you know, advocate for myself. So at first I did not, I did not know how to do it. I was, you know, cuddled up in my bed, just so anxious about it all. Didn't know how to listen to my body, but after, you know, kind of taking a step back and going it step by step by step, instead of all at once, then I was able to realize um, the signals that my body was telling me like, Hey, doxycycline, it's not for you. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about your, your, your brain fog and your neurological issues a little bit um, and how you're working on that with your mental health professionals, as well as your, as well as your, um, your um, medical professionals. Um, so one of the things that Dr. Horowitz always talks about it is of course um, your, you know, your brain is going to, going to have some issues. You have bugs in your brain, right? So we, we know that we have bugs in our brain when, when, or it's likely we have bugs in our brain and our neurological system when we have these, these, these tick diseases. Um, Dr. Horowitz talks a little bit about the trauma associated with having these microbes in your body and your body's response to that trauma. He also talks a lot about, you know, what it's like to be gaslit. We spent a fair amount of time talking about the way you were gaslit, despite being a medical professional yourself. And then, of course, we also have these traumas that, that are just a part of our, our early life experiences that we, you know, that we bring with us. And, you know, and that combination of all that together puts us in a difficult position um, when we're dealing with brain health and Lyme disease. So what kinds of things are your medical professionals doing to help you to deal with the bugs in your brain, to deal with your, your, uh, your brain's reaction and your mind's reaction to the trauma that you're undergoing by having all of these tick diseases, you know, these microbes in your body, helping you to deal with the gaslighting that you, that you faced um, and probably even feeling more betrayed by the gaslighting as a medical professional. And then of course, whatever traumas you have to deal with during your childhood, whether it be your mother's health issues or anything else that was going on during your early childhood. Uh, well, so to help with, you know, my brain function, they're a big proponent of take fish oil, you know, it, it helps your brain and stuff like that. Um, so that's one thing that I'm doing. And then another thing that I do just for me personally is I like to read. I like to keep my brain moving because a moving brain is a good brain. Um, so what I've been doing is I've been really specific about reading books that then I will be able to retain. And I kind of like test myself on them a little bit. I'm like, okay, you just read this chapter. What was it about? Uh, so that's something that I'm doing personally for my own sanity to know that my brain is still working the way it should. 
Um, I, I have a lot of trauma when it comes to not being listened to and, you know, being told that I don't think you're right. You know, there's no way you could possibly be right for that. Um, and I'm still dealing with that. I'm still trying to deal with my emotions and moving forward from that. And I think a lot of that has to do with kind of in my adult years, me being a lot more shy than I used to be, a lot more self-reserved than I used to be, just because I'm so afraid of someone telling me you're not right. You know, you're not in your right mind. You're not accurate. Um, so I've been working a lot with, with my uh, mental health professional about how to deal with that sort of, you're gaslighting yourself almost, you know. Um, well, you're so in a loop, been, right? Which gets me to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is, has anyone discussed with you um, brain retraining? Has that been a part of any of the conversations that you're having? And it's one of the things that, you know, we're, we're thinking about encouraging people to look into during the prehabilitation phase, because what, what, what of course happens is we get into these loops and you just described the loop perfectly, right? Where you've been gaslit, now you're gaslighting yourself, which leads to more gaslighting, which you know, and you get into that loop and you're now in this neurological loop, which of course, you know, as a medical professional, if you're in the sympathetic uh, nervous system rather than, the, rather than the parasympathetic, when you're in this, when you're in the fight or flight mode, your immune system doesn't function, right? So you have to get into, you have to get into the rest and digest phase emotionally in order to be able to heal. But if you're in this loop where you're constantly in fight or flight, you physically can't heal. So has there been any conversations with either your medical or your mental health professionals about brain retraining and trying to help you to get out of these uh, neurological loops? There has been a little bit of a conversation where I have to be more aware of when I'm doing it. Um, so anytime that I start to like notice myself doing it, I have this protocol, if you will, that I kind of sit down and I meditate for five minutes. And I, I think about why am I thinking about this? What prompted it and how I'm going to get out of feeling that way. Um, and that's really helped me kind of get out of that loop and kind of go back to reality almost. Cause when you're in that loop, you're, you're not thinking about what's happening to you right now. It's just kind of you're going around in your head and you're thinking of scenarios and you're in the past or you're in the future and you're not living current. Uh, so that's kind of a way to ground yourself into the current situation that's happening right now. Why am I feeling this way? What made me feel this way and how I'm going to get out of feeling this way. Um, and that's really helped quite a lot. So one of the people in the community that's doing great work here is actually my co-host, right? Jen, Jen is, is somebody who's done a lot of work uh, with yoga and, and a lot of these sort of um, modalities that, are, that, that many people in the Lyme community find to be helpful. In fact, Jen even has some training on this. So Jen, why don't you weigh in on this and share with us your thoughts about the, uh, about the emotional element, the brain retraining, and some of the tools that you've used and you train others to use to help uh, in the situation we're just discussing with Kate. Sure. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Perfectly. I mean, we really cannot heal in that fight or flight mode. We have to get out of that. And that is one of the biggest challenges for Lyme patients, because not only are the physical symptoms driving you there, but the gaslighting from your doctors and your family and everything and yourself is um, just setting you up for disaster. So yeah, I have found a lot of healing with breath work. And I actually went and did a 600 hour teaching training for breath work. And it was really interesting because before that um, training, it was a 30 day like 
no kidding, six hours a day meditating, breath work, the whole nine. Um, before I went to that training, I was not able to, to drive at night. I wasn't able to get dressed every day. Like I was having all kinds of physical and emotional issues. And, um, after going through that training, I was like, just started getting so much energy back, started, um, getting dressed every day, started being able to drive more and get out more, which in turn gave me more energy. Um, and it really is like, um, it's such a necessary part of the healing that no one ever talks to us about, you know, you have to manage this, um, this fight or flight, this mental like anxiety that comes with the diagnosis, because you're not going to heal without it. It's just such a crucial piece. So I'm glad to hear that you've got some support in that realm. And, um, the meditating is amazing. Just like, um, I love that. And for a free tool for anybody out there, this insight timer and I N S I G H T insight. Um, it's free. It's an app on your phone. It has thousands and thousands of hours of like just instrumental music, um, guided meditations. There's even yoga on there as well. And on my website and on my YouTube channel, I also have some, some pranayama breath work. Um, that's super chill. You don't have to like do jumping jacks or anything. People are always like, Oh no, I I'm too tired. I can't do that. But it actually does give you more energy. Um, because it gets you out of that fight or flight. Like that is just so exhausting, you know? And I had the same kind of insomnia that you had Katie and, um, just having these tools of breath work and meditation. And the more you practice it, the easier it gets. So I always hear people say like, Oh, I can't meditate. Like my mind won't shut off. And it's just terrible. It's the worst experience. Well then start with 60 seconds, you know, and just build up, try to do it every single day. And you'll be amazed at, um, the, the physiological balance that you can get from, from just taking that time and turning inward. So I, I have another topic I want to ask the two of you about, um, have you, have you heard about people using psychedelics successfully? And do either of you think that psychedelics may be a shortcut to help folks when they're, when they're in this constant fight or flight, which again, I think most Lyme patients, quite frankly, and again, I'm not a medical professional, so I say this with all due respect, I think most of you have PTSD. Uh, I think you walk into this journey with PTSD. So um, do either of you think the psychedelics may be a tool that, uh, that needs to be more explored? And what are you hearing about that in the community? Uh, yeah, I'm really interested in it. I've read Michael Pollan's book on it. And um, I actually actually have a few VA doctors that are interested in it as well. Um, I think it has a lot of potential. I think it also could potentially be a harm to people. Um, so, you know, it's uh, still in such early phases um, that I'm not jumping both feet in or anything, but I am reading about it and I'm really interested. I am in Washington state and in Oregon, it's all, it's all legal. So it's just four hours stuff for yeah. me. I'm like, my dad actually called me up when they made it legal. He's like, are you going to move to Oregon now? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I haven't done it, but I am um, interested in that. I have a few clients who have done the combo, um, the frog one. Um, and they've had incredible results. I know a gal who like 
what got on the plane to Peru in a wheelchair and then came back running and skipping and jumping. And she's a hundred percent right now. Yeah, so Jen, I like like you, I'm I'm I, I'm intrigued by it. I think Michael Pond's book, which I read as well, was fantastic. He actually has a uh he has a series on Netflix, uh, which was fantastic, all about different types of psychedelics. We've interviewed many people on this podcast that have used combo and other type of psychedelics, but like you, I think it is potentially a great tool if used with a practitioner, right? So if you're going to go and if you're going to go down to work with with a, you know, a traditional healer, uh, you know, a, you know, then, and you're, you're going to be supervised, that's fine. If you're going to work with a therapist that's trained in psychedelics, that's fine. But the people who are experimenting with psychedelics on their own, I think that's, I think that's a disaster waiting to happen. And that's another thing that we have talked about. So can what are your thoughts on psychedelics? And, and have you thought at all about whether or not that may be a part of your either treatment or healing or rehabilitation journey? Uh, just like Jen, I think that it is great when used, you know, with a, a healthcare professional kind of on your team. I haven't read a whole lot about them, to be honest. I do know, though, that a lot of doctors have been using them on uh, people with PTSD to kind of retract your brain. Uh, and so I think that the work that they've done ha is incredible. And, you know, I just, I want to learn more about them before I personally seek use or, you know, recommend use to other people with PTSD. Uh, but I think that, you know, when properly used, it, it has seen some great benefits to people who are struggling with that PTSD from certain situations. So, Katie, what was your reaction? And I argued a moment ago that I think most of you who have Lyme disease are suffering from PTSD. Did you, did you react favorably to me making that argument or did you not like that argument? I think that you were spot on. Um, it's sometimes hard for us to kind of be vulnerable and agree with you that we have that PTSD, especially because it's been kind of put into a negative light almost, you know, a lot of people are, are against the word PTSD just because it has such a negative uh correlation. Um, but I think that you're spot on, you know, a lot of us do have PTSD, whether it's from the pain that we have felt in our healing journey, or the gaslighting that we've experienced, or just like the mental, um, you know, things that go on in our head, when we're dealing with all of this, there is a lot of room for PTSD to happen. And I think a lot of us with chronic Lyme have experienced it one time or the other. So Kenny, talk to us about what's been beautiful about this journey and why the beauty of this journey has triggered you to become an activist within the community. I think that the main reason why I want to talk about my experience is because not a lot of people know about it. And that is just like mind blowing to me, right? That so many people are struggling with it, but not a lot of people know how to, you know, fight it, or they don't know that so many other people are fighting the same battle as they are. Um, and I think that I, I really want to share my story about it just because of all of the stuff that happened to me when I was, you know, becoming aware that I had Lyme disease, when I was fighting the good fight, you know, and I'm still in active treatment, which, you know, you hear a lot from people who are past treatment and they're doing good, but I think that it, it helps a lot to hear from somebody who is still in the midst of the treatment, kind of still in the trenches with everybody trying to figure out what works best for them. Um, and I really just wanted to become an activist for Lyme disease because I think it's also, it's, it's not 
shown on a good light. You know, a lot of people kind of think of it as, oh, it's, it's a Lyme disease. What is Lyme disease? You know, what are your symptoms? They don't seem that bad. You know, you're, you're overplaying it and it's a gaslighting again, which is so frustrating. So I really want to just put my voice out there to help those who are kind of in the same cyclical cycle as I am, you know, with, oh yeah, I'm fine because people tell me I'm fine, even though it's okay to not be okay. So Katie, now Jen's going to ask you the final question of your Tick Camp interview. I'm excited. All right. <laughs> Me too. What's it going to be? Um, yeah, I just want to agree with you though real quick. Yeah, it's just like, oh, but you look great. You know, you look great. So can't be that bad. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear what do you wish that you had learned in nursing school? Mm. I mean, I wish I would have been taught about all of the illnesses and the diseases that are taught to be not prevalent, right? They, they don't really touch on that in the, in the curriculum. They touch on the major things like hepatitis and pneumonia and all of those things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis when you're inside a hospital, right? Uh, I wish they would have a built-in curriculum for chronic illnesses, what the symptoms are, you know, what the telltale signs are and how to be there for somebody when they are going through that, right? Because they teach you a lot about, you know, how to talk to somebody when you're drawing their blood for cancer, right? Like how to, how to be there for them during that. But it's never, this person is fighting a chronic illness. Here's how you should respond to that. Here's how you should treat them. Here's, you know, sort of the verbiage that you should talk to them about. So I would have really loved to have been educated on how to help people dealing with it, how to know the symptoms of it, uh, and just overall be more educated about it because not a lot of people are yes and did they teach you how to remove a tick they did um but <laughs> i wish they would have gone more in depth about it that as well because a lot of people think that you should just grab some tweezers and yank on it right and that is something that you really don't want to do um and again it's not something that's taught. Luckily me growing up in Colorado, a very woodsy area, we have mountains all over the place. We were told, you know, you cleanse it and you try and burn it out. Right. And not a lot of people know to do that. And so I wish I would have been taught, you know, the proper techniques as well. So then I can teach other people, especially in schooling. They don't, they don't tell you step-by-step step what to do or what to look for. No. Yeah, absolutely. Proper removals, like so important. I actually had a nurse tell me one time, Oh, just put nail polish remover on it. Oh my I'm gosh. Like, no, you know, you do not want it backing out on its own because it will regurgitate. And then that just ups your chances of getting all of these illnesses. And yeah. Wow. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Katie. Um, do you, do you have any more questions, Rich? No, I, I just want to thank the two of you for, for sharing uh, so much time with our community. Katie, you were really awesome. This was a really great interview and, and to, uh, to be as kind and as vulnerable and as 
willing to challenge the, you know, the, the traditional educational model that you were, you were uh, brought up in and that you were trained in was really, I have to tell you, really fantastic. And again, I, I can't uh, thank the brilliant Jen Heiler enough for taking time out of her really busy schedule. And folks, if you wanted to learn more about Jen, please go to episode 199, I'm sorry, 191 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. You can find um, Jen's book, The Limey's Survival Guide, um, you know, wherever you buy books. And you can also find that on, on uh, Jen's site. And Jen also has a number of really powerful educational programs that she makes available through her, uh, her site. And of course, you can work with Jen as a coach, so which is something we strongly urge people to do. So again, Jen, Katie, thank you so much for everything that you do for our community. And thank you for taking time out of your really busy scheduled time. I'm sorry, your really busy schedules to spend time with us here on TIG Bootcamp. Thank you, Rich. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp podcast interview with Katie Bork. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you would like to learn more about Katie, please visit her Instagram page at Katie J. Bork. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Thirdly, Tick Bootcamp podcast has created a Tick by Blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been provided by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And lastly, we thank our community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thanks for listening.